February 1st, 2022, and I'm back with Matt McGregor to go over the week's noteworthy news articles. And the first one we got here is the Federal Trade Commission blocks Lock- Lockheed Martin's acquisition of Airjet Rocketdyne. And so, of course, uh, the F- FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, which kind of has purview over this whole thing, came out with a couple of explanations. One is basically uh, consolidation is bad. We don't want more consolidation. And then the other part was kind of like this idea of information sharing. So Aerojet, as a subcontractor in this vertically integrated, or I suppose proposed vertically integrated merger with Lockheed, would be subcontracting to Boeing and potentially you know Raytheon and other guys as well as Lockheed. They'll get that information and be able to share it, you know, in some respects with Lockheed Martin itself, who would be competing with those guys for you know the airframe of a missile or something like that that the rocket motor might go in so i guess those are the two things that of course very different than uh the outcome with uh northrop and orbital where they were allowed to merge which was a very similar vertical integration of a rocket motor and kind of airframe company so there you go any any big thoughts on this one i guess it's kind of like you know just high on policy from the ftc decision right yeah, I mean, you, you do have to feel for Lockheed a little bit. They're probably <laughs> kicking themselves on the timing, like, ah, oh, we had only done this. But, um, yeah, you know, I, I think I, you can see why Lockheed probably wanted to do it. Uh, I don't, honestly, I don't understand their value proposition entirely because they're generally pretty good at getting um, contracts with subs that are fairly favorable because they go into these long, long-term agreements and, you know, they're pretty good negotiators and things like that. So, uh, and they have a lot of business, right? So they have a lot of different like applications for, for different companies' products. So I, I, I do wonder like in the end, like how much efficiencies they gain from this, but uh, you really can't argue with kind of FT, F, the FTC's, you know, comeback on this, which is that, you know, not having that competitive pressure is going to result in, you know, less innovation, less, uh, uh, incentives to to kind of you know inject more R and D and advance the product, you know is that true given uh, given the the Northrop Grumman acquisition and the fact that they will be somewhat competing with them, uh, you know who who knows but I think I think you know I, I think having independent suppliers in general is a good good thing because you know there's too many incentives there when you know like the, even with the Northrop Grumman deal they still were the FTC said they had to sell to competitors and stuff but you know how that how that could play out, right? Like, yeah, yeah, I'll give you the absolute minimum. You know, I won't cooperate at the same level I would if I had more incentives in this game. And so, you know, I think you do have to kind of acknowledge that the incentives, when you misalign incentives, you know, you have sort of the poor outcomes. So, yeah, can't argue with FTC's position here because it'll be interesting to see if Lockheed actually does uh, it does counter the lawsuit. Yeah, I guess it. Doesn't really, I wonder how much on the competition front, right? Because it's not just like Orbital and a couple other guys. There's all sorts of rocket manufacturers for space that could, you know, enter also potentially, you know, just like the air-to-air missile kind of market, right? And do some of those other missions eventually. So, and then of course, but of course I agree. Like if Lockheed bought Aero, Aerojet would probably just operate as a very independent business unit, right? Within the Lockheed family, probably something like Sikorsky is today. I don't actually Sikorsky did get, you know, merged up into rotary and mission systems. Right. So I don't know. I mean, it, maybe it's a good, 
good question as to how integrated they were really looking at them to be or whether they would kind of just let them be their own profit and law center. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think I think that jet, that particular jet engine market or that missile engine, I think it is it is sort of unique. I don't know. I guess it will be interesting to see how many uh, commercial kind of entities start to play in that given the space market. But um, yeah, I mean, they may have been looking at it more of, OK, now Northrop, who is is their prime competitor on a lot of aircraft type type efforts. Um, you know, maybe they were just looking at it as, OK, they're. They're integrated. They have their contractor, their engine manufacturer locked down, and we want to make sure, you know, we have the same level of access. Uh, so, you know, maybe it's not even that they were trying to get, uh, make it a huge profit generating thing. Maybe it was just kind of security, business security, uh, for some of their product lines. But yeah, hard hard to know. I guess like, maybe they maybe they put some of that in their FTC uh, write up. I'm not sure. But. Maybe, maybe Raytheon's kind of feeling missing out here. Maybe they can swap in uh, jets instead of rockets on on some of their <laughs> missiles. Uh, yeah, that's true. Well, actually, Raytheon, in a way, Raytheon is kind of almost unaffected by it, right? Because be, you know they're like now they have two companies they can go to that'll, you know, they can kind of, I guess maybe, maybe they're in the same boat. I don't know. Maybe maybe it puts a little more pressure on them. But I stick them with uh, Lockheed here. Lockheed Martin's optionally unmanned surface vessel from Naval News and. So I guess that's a little bit different than the OMFV, the optionally manned fighting vehicle. This one's optionally unmanned. I guess it gets to the same thing, right? <laughs> but uh, backwards. Now, so this one here is for the Navy's future plans for a large unmanned surface vessel. Um, and it will be able to actually perform the shooter mission and able to fire things like uh, the SM2, SM6, Tomahawks, Naval Strike Missile, anything that can come out of uh, the Mark 41 VLS. And so it also has CWIP Block 2 electronic jamming systems against incoming missiles. So it looks like there's some pretty hefty capability on this thing. Um, I guess the, the question is, will it you know, transition to a larger program? And how well does it do against all the various competitors that I don't quite have my hands around? Seems like a fast-moving world there. Yeah, I mean, it definitely seems like a space. I think Lockheed's kind of smart to... Uh, to kind of step out and, and, and make a, you know, clearly they're making a statement, right. With this like public thing and showing all the capabilities they could do. Um, you know, it, it seems like it's too open to commercial, the commercial sector, just given how, you know, uh, basic some of this, uh, some of the technology is right. You have the, the unmanned surface vessel, but then, you know, you have these, most of the launch vehicles are in the shipping containers, which, you know, have like a standard kind of interface. And so, you know, it, it definitely isn't, something that other folks couldn't get in the business. Now, I think where they bring probably some capabilities that other vendors wouldn't is some of the stuff with, you know, electronic jamming, electronic warfare, um, you know, the Aegis, some of the radar stuff and things, other th other capabilities they can integrate to make it a little bit more capable. Uh, but of course, you know, like we've talked about, once you, once you start kind of gold plating, you know, these, um, you know, unmanned surface vessels that are supposed to be, you know, cheap, you know, uh, somewhat disposable. Uh, if you start to like, you know, load them up with all of the latest gear, um, all of a sudden they're now like a, a capital kind of investment. And so I think, I think there is like a, a point there where you, you probably don't want to go beyond where, you know, um, you, you lose the, the economic aspect of this, but definitely seems like a, definitely seems like they're, 
they have a they're looking at the strategy they're looking at the you know the the, the, the naval concepts and the marine corps concepts that that are that are planned for the pacific and really trying to kind of nestle into those so you know one of the things that they talked about was too was okay they can actually you know customize some of the shipping containers to fire the conventional prop strike hypersonic missile uh they're looking at kind of like you know they can start to provide sort of escort capability to the light amphibious warships that the marine corps wants so they can get around and, and it would you know provide them protection since those 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 light warships won't be able to really kind of uh do a lot of self-defense but you could have these uh unmanned surface vessels come in and provide that though the one thing i feel like we should talk about though eric is this idea of developing a platform that's optionally unmanned i was thinking about this uh, and talking with some some folks about this and i think rand actually wrote a paper on this recently uh, about the the economies of developing something for either manned or unmanned and losing kind of the benefit of both because you know like if you think about an unmanned aircraft you actually need where the pilot would typically sit you actually need to put like a, a lot of cameras and and different sensors and things to substitute for the situational awareness of a human and same with an unmanned surface vessels like where you would have like capability uh, you know birthing and you know laboratories and and other kind of you know human related things you would typically fill that with sensors or other equipment or you would use it to put more of these you know missiles on the deck and, and the same with you know some of the some of the requirements for reliability and different things like that that you need an unmanned that you don't need if it's manned so one thing I do think is that the Navy and the Air Force and everyone's going to have to, I think, figure out where they draw the line in this optionally unmanned, and the Army, to include them, uh, where they draw the line in this and just say, okay, we're all in on unmanned. We're going to find ways to make it work uh, and, and, and just gain all the efficiencies of that versus trying to straddle both camps. So anyway, just wanted to throw that in the conversation. Yeah, it, it feels like, you know, for something like a ship system, optionally unmanned is not like as big of a cost, right? Like there, there is some benefit because even today with a lot of the unmanned, it seems like you have to get them started even with people. And then they like, they, they, uh, you know, get away from dock and then they have to kind of like jump ship and, and get onto another ship. So there's still some human in the loop, but with like an aircraft, like, being able to do all the certification and all the space and all the other stuff for a human is a much bigger problem or deal, right? So in one case, it seems like you probably want to choose manned or unmanned for aircraft. And then for ship, it's like potentially, un you know, the optionality is, is not too bad there, right? Or you just have a regular kind of manned ship and you start introducing elements of unmanned and then eventually you figure out, you know, what are the requirements around a completely unmanned vessel, right? I don't know. I guess it depends on the crew size. I mean, when you start getting to a decent crew size, now you're talking about, you know, a lot of space dedicated towards, you know, maybe it's not so much the birthing space. Maybe that's not that big of a deal because they're pretty small. But, you know, you start to add plumbing for, you know, for waste and, you know, water, you know, pot potable water and, you, you know, all that kind of stuff and like, you know, kitchen areas and recreation areas. Like as you start to get to a lower crew size, I think you're sucking up a lot of the like a benefit of an unmanned surface vessel. So, you know, because a lot of that's going to take a ton of space, a lot more complexity resources, you know. So I, I don't know. I'm still not sure I see 
it being that easy. Maybe if it's only like one or two people, it's not a big deal, but I feel like there's a lot of infrastructure that comes with people. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, true that. Um, but it again, like I, I, the next one that we got here, sticking with the unmanned surface vessels, uh, the U.S. Navy adopts new strategy for prioritizing the building blocks of unmanned tech. And so I guess the, the little thread here was that the Navy in 2020 laid out a pretty aggressive plan to get towards medium and large USVs and then quickly transition to a program of record and I guess start building them, you know, in quantity with shipbuilding funds. And then Congress was kind of pushing back against this strategy and they were saying, uh, quote, they want it to be crystal clear that uh, they will not invest in any programs of record until there is a clear hull mechanical and electrical system that will work for weeks or months at a time without sailors. Um, and so the, qu the quote here from a Navy individual was, have you ever seen a propulsion plant that can operate for 45 days without a person touching it on a ship? <laughs> That's the question mark. And I guess some of the question here is, you know, like these, these kind of requirements, what is the operational need for 45 days, right? First 15 days. And like, then we'll figure out how to get there. Um, the, it's a good question of, should they go kind of into production with these things before we think we can get to 45 days or not? But, um, uh, that, that looks to be slowing down some of the, the Navy's issues here. And that seems to be a very hard challenge when, you know, you're saying you're not going to have an individual there at all, right? So that puts into perspective all the piping you need for the the meat flesh, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know where the 45 days comes from. We, we've had some conversations on this. And, you know, the idea, even now, you know, ships generally get resupplied at, at various points and things like that. And so I don't know if that's what the 45 days is based on, but... You know, the idea that you couldn't have a tender, you know, that was dedicated to kind of servicing these different unmanned ships and, uh, you know, this tender kind of goes around and does stop offs and repairs things that, uh, you know, make sure that everything's kind of in, in working order. I, you know, I don't know. I guess it depends on, like, how many of these ships there are, how, like, the proximity that they operate within. If if they're all, like, out to sea, like, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and, you, you know, out like, you know, way out in this littoral, you know, maybe, maybe this kind of requirement makes sense, but I am kind of curious about where that comes from. And it feels a little bit, maybe I'm just a little suspicious of it, of like, did that, did, did, did that come up? Did someone come up with that? Uh, because they wanted to kind of slur roll the unmanned and there's a lot of like equities and the, the man shifts. So, <laughs> you know, I don't know, I don't know for sure, but, um, one of the things I did take away from the article is it does sound like, you know, that, that buying a little bit of this extra time while years were lost, it does sound like some of these companies like Huntington Ingalls uh, were able to kind of make some advances, make some investments, uh, focus on, you know, kind of advancing this unmanned maritime autonomy architecture and, and, and go after, um, you know, go after some things to, you know, mature so that they're in a better place to, to compete for some of these. So, yeah, so maybe in the end it worked out okay, but it definitely is kind of a bummer that we lost we lost years at kind of perfecting, you know, how we integrate these ships into operations and, and things like that. Yeah, and I'm sure the companies like Huntington Angles themselves, you know, they, they did have that new underwater facility that they're making for unmanned and all that 
these companies seem to have been going ahead making those advance those investments right expecting the navy to kind of follow that up with those programs of record and then the whole thing kind of got slow rolled so it'll be interesting to see you know whether they can kind of keep the slack up um for for a little while longer but the navy here is saying that they're unlikely to pursue a formal program for unmanned surface vessels in the next five years instead focusing on enabling technologies so they'll have to do all that kind of stuff land-based testing and i guess get up to meet every kind of requirement i'd like to see the list of requirements in 45 days without for the propulsion plant you know of endurance if that's one of them what are all the other ones you know so but it seems like you know this gets back to kind of our pbb reform thing as well right like what are the criteria for getting into a program of record potentially the navy in 2020 thought it might be mature or they're just like if it's mature enough, we need to have the program of record lined up so we don't wait another five years, right? So maybe their prematurity was based on just being able to get at any type of funding, um, but they lost the options by having to pre-specify like when they get into production and everything, which couldn't have been knowable until they advanced past certain types of tests, right? So I don't know. It's like a chicken or the egg problem with the budget. Yeah, I actually I didn't even pick up on that five years. That's that's actually pretty disheartening. I, I didn't uh, didn't realize they were planning on focusing on the enabling technologies for that that long. I, I hope they accelerate that. But yeah, I mean, there's also the point of of focusing too much on on like kind of these developmental items that um, yes, are they important? Should they be pursued? Yes, can they be pursued in parallel? to kind of perfecting, uh, you know, one, the production of these, like, uh, you know, by, by actually getting into a program of record is when you start to actually get, you know, the real user involvement, uh, you know, start to start to have those tough conversations on trade-offs. And, you know, so I think by not starting a program of record and keeping it in sort of this like fledgling stage, it's like, I think you defer some of those hard conversations too. So, it, it may even be worse than five years because, uh, yeah, the enabling stuff may be in place, but there's all this whole other, other part of the conversation that hasn't really happened. So, um, yeah, I guess this is a one to watch and see, see what happens. Yeah. It's, there's no formal program of record in the fit up for the Navy. <laughs> it's kind of interesting to think about. Um, but they do have those like line items that I guess they're in the BA six four account like the large unmanned and the medium unmanned um vessels so um anyway yeah they'll have to prototype themselves to death for the next five years (laughs) yeah exactly um but that seems to be kind of some of what was desired from out of uh jack reed and the rest when they kind of had those ndaa items a few years ago with like all those new layers of approvals for for land-based testing before you can kind of integrate into a lead chip design. So potentially the, the Navy is just kind of, I don't know, <laughs> getting punished or like, you know, this is, they're getting what they deserve from the last several rounds of failures of on lead chip builds. Right. <laughs> well, this is where like we've talked about the system can't really tolerate failures and it's just, you know, it's just right. the wrong way of viewing it. Um, you know, it's just, yeah. Chinese satellite observed grappling another satellite out of its orbit. So 
the Shenzhen 21 satellite or SJ-21 uh, was able to do a rather large maneuver and move to, towards a dead Baidu navigation satellite. And then it was able to knock it out of orbit into a graveyard orbit where it wouldn't collide or anything. But of course, all the speculation is, well, if they can do that, then they can kind of grapple, you know, U.S. military satellites as well um, at will, potentially. So that, that's another one of their anti-sat measures, I suppose, that the Chinese have in their quiver of arrows. So did you get anything out of this one? Well, I mean, it's one of those things where, um, you know, things can be used for positive purposes and things can be used for nefarious. And, you know, this type of, uh, you know, actually China has been a little bit more focused, I think, even than the U.S. on sort of orbit cleanup and, and you know, kind of having different capabilities that can do that. So there's the on-orbit, you know, servicing assembly and manufacturing uh, sort of technology that's advancing. And, and so it's not unreasonable to think that, uh, you know, China wouldn't launch some satellites or wouldn't have some satellites that can do that. But at the same time, something that can grapple a dead satellite and, you know, move it into a more uh, maintenance orbit, you know, can also grab a live satellite that is, uh, you know, uh, considered a threat to their national security. So, so yeah, absolutely. Uh, SJ 21 has been, been tracked for a long time and, um, this type of thing will, will have to be something that the space force is prepared to defend against. Um, they maintain situational awareness. And if, a, if something like this starts to get close, uh, they're going to have to be able to maneuver away. Some satellites can do that more effectively than others. And whenever you maneuver, you burn fuel and you lose life. So, uh, so it'd always be a trade-off, but um, yeah, this is a this is a threat that's going to be pervasive in the space environment. So we'll have to get used to handling it. Yeah, start putting those uh, like electrical rods that R two D two has that just like shock the enemy, you know, <laughs> or something like. Yeah. So some kind of physical defense on these things. Um, so the next one we got Army's new infantry assault buggy is a useless garbage pile from Task and Purpose, and this is kind of the response. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was pretty funny. Um, pile of dog. <laughs> <laughs> and so this, of course, like the director of uh, operational test and evaluation had his big report out uh, this year just recently, and the ISV got a pretty big hit in that one where it said basically it was not operationally effective or suitable, and... Um, the ISV here, I guess some of the units that were using it decided to just jump out, conceal the ISV, and then go as this on a dismounted, you know, kind of raid and on their missions. And so um, it didn't particularly get the highest, I guess, um, you know, feedback there. But, you know, in terms of acquisition, it was supposed to be, you know, super... Kathleen Hicks, there's a picture there of Kathleen Hicks, Depsec Def, driving it and saying... Isn't this great? It's got ninety percent cots, <laughs> right? So this—it's almost—it's hard for me to you know know here. Like, is it a pile of garbage or is it just like um, the the kind of military reacting to kind of a very cotsy thing and saying you know it doesn't meet our needs? Yeah, I mean, it was probably somewhat in how it was designed. Like, it was probably designed to be pretty basic, yeah. so it, was, it would be more affordable. It does. I mean, DOTNA reports are almost never like they're almost never like this thing is great and and you guys yeah we should definitely buy these like it's almost always fairly negative. But I will say I was kind of taken aback by 
some of the write-ups. Um, one, it was, yeah, cramped, too small to haul supplies, okay. Uh, but the fact that they um, were not did not successfully evade enemy detection, ambushes, and engagements during a majority of their missions, uh, they had to, like, reduce speed. Um, they couldn't, uh, they had uh, experienced numerous casualties, degraded combat power. Like, yeah, it definitely went on and on in just the, the ability and also that it's deeply uncomfortable to ride in making entering and exiting the vehicle rapidly and like, yeah I, 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 that one was a was a pretty good one but it, you know it seems to me maybe some of these uh tests and evaluations here like did they just like test it on its own they just like put these guys in the vehicle and just said like drive into an ambush and see if you can figure out where the ambush is because you would expect they would have kind of a network of sit like the, the ISV itself would be part of like a broader s- system of networks, right? Where you might have like guys with drones or whatever, other types of reconnaissance vehicles. And, you know, so should it do everything that, that was asked of it here? I don't know. Well, typically they'll, they will come up with like operational environment that, you know, it's supposed to operate in and they'll come up with some scenarios that they could do. So, I mean, I don't think it was as much about like accomplishing some end mission, but the fact that, they should have some element of surprise. They should be able to get in and out of the vehicle. They should be able to fire from the vehicle. I mean, some of those probably were reasonable expectations. So, yeah. you know, they probably need another another round on this one. To, well, they're, they're moving pretty to. fast on it, it looks like. Uh, they, they awarded GM Defense here $214 million in 2020 for 649 ISVs and eventually up to 2016 and 65 of them over eight years so um it looks like they're already kind of into production despite the fact that you know this this evaluation comes out i wonder you could you just pivot to toyota and just be like can you just mount some machine guns (laughs) like which one's more effective well i mean it's the army and the military one thing the military is good at is adapting i'm sure what they will wind up doing is soldiers will get innovative they'll find ways to kind of like counter some of this, like saw away part of the, the interior structure or mount something here. You know, they'll, they'll come up with different ways around this, but I mean, yeah, if the army's already buying it, you know, soldiers will probably be unhappy about it. And then, you know, a couple of years in after they've sort of adapted and kind of, uh, you know, made it their own, that'll probably uh, calm down a bit, but yeah. Yeah. We'll have to see, you know, those figures are always big, but, um, the army might not have actually awarded very much in the way of production orders um, on that contract of 214 million. Well, with this feedback too, I would, I would definitely imagine the army would try to do one more round to at least sort of get after some of the big, big ones and say, you're not gonna be able to redesign like the hall or, or the, or the uh, you know chassis or whatever, but you know, well, can we kind of, you know, reshape some things inside the vehicle to give more space or uh, could we move the seat belt in a different place? Like, you know, I mean, they might, might be able to do some things around the edges that actually address some of these things without uh, huge, huge modifications. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, this is an interesting test case of like, well, can you just adapt COTS to kind of like a, a military use case? And I think it, there's always going to be those types of deficiencies that people will have. And I, I think you make the good point of like, how do you meet in the middle, right? <laughs> like, how does the, the military user kind of adapt to what they have? Because you know, if it's an order of magnitude less cost, it might be worth it to, to kind of do those types of things. Well, we also shouldn't be, 
we also shouldn't shouldn't pretend that when we do a completely customized military customized vehicle that it always comes out in the end too i mean humvees had all sorts of issues and people complained about them being very uncomfortable i, I drove it drove it a few times and man it is it's not it's not a comfortable vehicle so <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and if you look at the the British Ajax program, which apparently remember those people were getting uh, all sorts of back problems and other things, and there was like noise yeah. and vibration, and they're like about to yeah. cancel this thing, and that's like billions of dollars down down the down the drain. Whereas this GM vehicle here, ISV, of course, is not heavily armed or anything, but much much cheaper. Yeah, well, this I mean, I think the whole point I would take away from this is engage your users early like there's really no reason that this company couldn't have gotten some soldiers in there and been like hey how would you guys use this vehicle why don't you try jumping in and out of it with your armor on is this does that work like what could we change so engage your users early and often pete uh posted a, a good blog post uh, recently on that and i think that's a good lesson yeah so let's pivot to the army uh ivas program here it's futuristic heads-up display is getting the more hands of the soldiers this year from again task and purpose and so there's all sorts of things that the that the Microsoft HoloLens now Army IVAS um, can do: language translations, high-resolution night and thermal sensors, facial recognition, uh, the ability to see what a location looks like before you get there. And one of the lieutenants here is saying that the best ability is seeing where everyone's located on the battlefield at any point in time. Uh, that's by far the best feature. So I guess that's very much like. I don't know playing Call of Duty or something, and you just see everybody on a map where where you are relative to them. So here's another example of of adapting kind of commercial tech in the army, um, and it did get you know I think there were were some testing problems. One of them here again, and it's another requirement um, that I'm not really sure exactly where it comes from, but uh, they need to have a three a 72 hour mission for the batteries. And so that's that's one of the deficiencies, as well as, I guess, reliability, uh, potentially weather is still an issue for it. Uh, so, again, some moving forward, some some good things out of IVAS, um, some challenges, but they're kind of like in that iterative development loop. And I think they were engaging early. Right. So Pete's Pete's post was actually about IVAS. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and if you look at some of the uh, comments, uh, I think the lieutenant uh, Luke uh, Hewen's comment was, was really dead on, but even some of the other ones, uh, Army Sergeant said, uh, you know, um, it has countless uses, Nav- land navigation, be able to track things on the battlefield, moving through urban complexes, moving through ur- open terrain. It's insane. You know, the Sergeant First Class was like, uh, you know, went on, you never have to stop to do a map check or anything like that because just the push of a button, you have an arrow that's in the bottom of your screen and you walk the arrow to your point. So there's no accidentally drifting left or right. Like uh, to hear some of those kind of comments, you know, it really shows that they're on the right track. I mean, they're they're getting they're getting after some of these key you know key challenges that soldiers have. And so yeah, they'll have to work through some of those other reliability things. But uh, yeah, this is I think this is moving along just like you should expect it to. But it feels like there's always like these things that that like they try to like hook up programs onto. So it's like oh well, let's stop doing. USVs because you don't have a 45 day without maintenance engine or you know you, you need to have a battery that goes for 72 hours and it seems like okay well I think you know like we should introduce this early because you know the trajectory of batteries improvement 
seems to be along this curve and that looks like something that will be you know like you can kind of look into the future and say like will this or will this not actually make sense there's i think that's actually how the polaris missile system was started because they're like well we can't put a missile of this size um today with a nuclear you know uh, warhead because they're too big but the trajectory of improvement on warhead size is going like this so we can meet them in five years by the time we finish this missile like the warhead will be small enough so let's design it to that but it has to be kind of like an informed i guess you know and calculated risk but in some of these cases um some of these i guess risk areas i would like to see them go on the that kind of capability over time curve right it's like okay it can do yeah. some things can't do everything let's just like introduce it and track that progress to some of these objectives no exactly it's it's the reason why you know when historically you look at acquisition programs why they've taken 10 15 20 years is because uh we, we had the mindset that every single little thing had to be perfect before we could move to like a milestone c or four production or l and yeah, it's it's absolutely absurd. Uh, we nobody nobody else in the commercial sector does that. Uh, you you put out a product, you get it to a, a good minimum viable you know product, whatever it is. So it's it's useful to the warfighter, provides some value, and then you you incrementally refine that over time as technology advances or you know as you invest in certain certain things. But to just wait for everything to be perfect is is what's gotten us in the place we are, and we, we need to break that mold. Next one, we got new F-35 lot 15 through 17 deal hung up on inflation, COVID-19 mitigation costs. And so the F-35 has been falling and went below 80 million at jet, at, but for lots 12 through 14 in that block by, before 15 through 17, uh, it looks like the services are ordering fewer aircraft and they're getting the block four model with more capabilities and hence more costs. And so I guess inflation is part of this um covid mitigation is part of this additional capability is part of this lower buys is part of this um but uh yeah so i guess no one was is surprised that i guess the, the f-35 might be bumping up in cost a little bit that's been kind of in the wheelhouse for a while now yeah i, I was actually trying to track down how much how much the numbers went down uh i, I pulled up crs did a nice report um, and it looks like they, for 22, they, they did order, um, 85 aircraft. And so the, um, you know, I'm not sure what the partner buys were. I mean, there's, there's quite a few partners now in FNS cases. Well, they said the new plat, the plateau rate is 156 F-35s a year. But they also smoothed that out as part of like the whole COVID thing because they, they knew they weren't going to make the original numbers. So they were trying to get, I think to 160 or something, but I thought there was actually like an intentional smoothing plan that DOD and Lockheed worked on. And that's what I wasn't totally clear on is, you know, just was this primarily reduced numbers because of COVID because of the smoothing plan or uh, did they actually order much less than what was anticipated? Um, not really sure, but yeah, I, I can see these hour of negotiations are really always, you know, very emotional events and uh, really hard to do. So with all these additional costs, I, I don't feel, I feel really bad for the, for the negotiators on this because yeah, trying to like, yeah, how do you account for COVID, right? How do you negotiate that? Right. And how do you, how do you balance like, well, what could have Lockheed mitigated? What couldn't they mitigate? And 
Um, yeah, that's really complicated. So this will be. I wonder what happened to that because they were talking about all these requests for equitable adjustments, and then like yeah. they would evaluate every single damn one of them for COVID mitigation. And I was expecting there was going to be some kind of global settlement that was done, but I have no idea what what eventually happened with that. Um, and like, is it just on a case by case basis? This just happening everywhere, and we're not really hearing about it, or <laughs> or what's happening? I don't know. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I mean, generally with the LRP negotiation, the government will look at the previous lot or not the previous lot because that's that hasn't happened generally, but like a lot before, and then they'll compare costs and they will expect some costs to have gone down, just like learning curves and you know production efficiencies and things. And so, I guess you'd have to sort of look at and compare like the costs of some of the sub suppliers and say okay, they were at this much before COVID, they are this much now, how much of that is because of COVID or how much is that just because things change? Like you, I, you almost do kind of have to sort through that. But yeah, I'm with you. Like I, I feel like adding COVID in this is kind of unfair because we should have dealt with that as part of like those high level negotiations. Adding it into each program, that, that is really complicated for the negotiators. I don't know how you sort through that. One thing that was weird here is that they kept pushing for a five-year uh, PBL uh, logistics contract versus the three year. And it seems like if you think inflation's a problem, then you wouldn't want this kind of longer fixed price contract on your hands. You would almost want the shorter contract. I was kind of interested that the incentives were still towards the, the five year. Oh, I think it's simply that if you have a five-year, you can negotiate those longer-term uh, agreements, and, and Lockheed's very good at doing that. So uh, I think I think for them, uh, but most of them they should be on like a, I don't know, some kind of, uh, you know, adjustable basis, right? Like based on like the PPI or something like that, like a fixed-price EPA contract. Because again, like if like you might be really good at at you know, keeping those costs down, but those suppliers might get hosed, right? If they agree to a fixed price contract and then inflation is 10% a year for five years. (laughs) I mean, we don't know what that's going to be, but that's a potential outcome. Well, that is how, that's how most of the primes negotiate with their subs. You know, I, it's a little bit of an Amazon relationship. I'd compare it to where Amazon doesn't really care that you make this thing and that you're, you know, you're barely going to be able to break even. Uh, you know, there's a little bit of a cutthroat thing where I, I think if this PBL went through, I think that you would see them return to their negotiating table with a lot of their suppliers and say, now I can guarantee you, I'm not just like going after, you know, the yearly sustainment contracts or the, you know, the lot buys for the production. Now I have a, this five-year guaranteed sustainment contract and I'm, and I'm predicting that I will need this many parts. And so, if I can guarantee I'm going to buy this many parts, I want this price point. And, and so I think you can expect some of those negotiations to be reopened and for it to be for Lockheed to be a, a tough customer. So yeah, I, I, I think that's what probably would happen. And you're right. If inflation goes up, those kind of, those, those uh, vendors may, uh, may, may get hurt. Well, sounds like you're a tough customer there, Matt. Uh, <laughs> viral, <laughs> last one we're going to do here, because uh, this one is just funny. A uh, viral letter begging military to fix our computers reaches Pentagon leaders. And so this one was from uh, Michael Cannon, and it's kind of, it's a lot of funny stuff here. He's like, you want innovation? You literally lost hundreds of thousands of employee hours last year because computers don't work. Fix our computers. 
You tell us to accelerate, change, or lose. Fix our computers. My computer froze today when I renamed the file on the desktop. Fix our computers. And so apparently this got pretty high up up to the chain. Um, and, and even uh, Frank Kendall was kind of commenting on it. And so, yeah, I think the, the real end call here seemed to be... And I've seen these actual, like... Um, figures over time like aggregate it spending has been relatively flat like you expect it to grow you know maybe like five ten percent a year but it seemed like it had been pretty flat and so maybe there's just not the budget there but they kind of were saying you know getting at budget for a lot of these basic it things just isn't there right and it, i can easily imagine you know people saying oh well we don't need that you know let's let's reprioritize to the hypersonic missile or something so yeah, fix our computers. Have you had any bad experiences with that? <laughs> oh man, I honestly, I mean, when when I left government, I I won't say I left government because of it, but it was probably like a twenty five percent factor. Um, and and when I left, and I you know went to a went to an organization that like I showed up on day one, they had my computer, they had my account set up, it was seamless to log in, everything worked. I was just like kind of blown away. I mean, it is absurdly painful and I'm not even sure the thing that I get at, because I've read that and I thought, you know, I think everybody can relate to it, um, is that it's not even so much that they need a lot of money. I'm not convinced it's really a resource thing because, you know, DISA and, and, you know, the different IT shops, I mean, they get good chunks of money. I think it's more that we've prioritized security so much um, that we just basically loaded up this computer with so much junk, not junk, but like, you know, monitoring software and, and this and that. And so when you start to like add up all of the, the workload on that computer, it's, it's so much of a security oriented that you don't have anything left for productivity. And so, yeah, it's just painful. And then, you know, there's a lot of apps and different tools out there that could be very useful in so many different ways. I mean, if people realize, I don't know if the general public knows, just how much like the defense department relies on spreadsheets from Excel or, you know, uh, PowerPoints, uh, you know, we're very basic. We're, we're stone age in comparison to the commercial sector. And it, 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 there's a lot of apps and stuff that would be very useful and, and it would be great to have that. People would totally adopt them, but they can't get on the system because it's not secure. They're not certified, blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, you're, you're relying on like very basic functionality that doesn't even work well either. So, uh, yeah, love this. I hope it gets some more attention kind of with Nick Shalon's thing and, and it gets more of a focus area because I think, I think if we want to attract the top talent, you bring in top talent from outside or from, you know, some grad school and they're like an AI expert and you put them on the DOD uh, system with a computer that operates the way that it does. Uh, I don't know how long they last. I don't know how long they stay around. <laughs> yeah. Well, my my Pentagon computer wasn't so bad. I mean, I could I never had the problems that these people had where it took, you know, like a full day just to fill out a DTS report or something like that. But uh, I would have appreciated a 64-bit computer. I mean, if everyone gets a 64-bit solid state, that would be that'd be pretty sweet. <laughs> what year did you leave the building? Uh 2018. Okay, I'm surprised you didn't have some issues, but yeah, well, that's good. You got lucky. <laughs> yeah. Uh, actually, so just the last last little note here: the the Navy and Marines say they would cut a bunch of flying hours under a full year CR. They would do ten or twenty percent cuts in the last quarter and half of the fiscal year, and there's thirty two new programs 
that would or new starts uh, that they would not be allowed to get going in this CR. So another CR watch. We'll see how long this one goes, and we'll see when the next budget drops and all the continuing drama of the continuing resolutions. Yeah, that well, the one thing on that article that that was kind of blew me away is that the O and M budget would be two point five billion short, uh, just just by, I guess, by virtue of, of, of last year's budget and how much they they were planning for this year. So two point five billion in O and M. I mean, that is, I mean, we're talking about like probably nobody travels, probably you know clearly the the flying hours uh, are cut, and, and just a lot of other impacts that just basically make life miserable. So. That's that's pretty substantial. Um, I, and I think, you know, I, I really hope Congress can kind of solve this CR thing so we don't have this every year because I really just think it makes us look like, I mean, the credibility, you know, in the world is just like people see this. They just don't understand it. No other country works this way. <laughs> that's all we got time for today. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, sir. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.